Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. Ah, coffee. It's the first thing that comes to mind when you wake up in the morning, at least it is for me, and is considerably the world's most popular drink. For my guest today, CEO and founder of Sustainable Harvest Coffee Importers, David Griswold. The coffee business has been part of his life for more than 25 years. Established with a goal to create social and environmental change in coffee communities, Sustainable Harvest is creating transparent relationships that increase value throughout the entire supply chain, all while fostering greater sustainability within the coffee industry. Also considered the first coffee importer to become a certified B Corporation, David has leveraged the power of transparency and has helped to change how farmers and buyers interact. David, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. It is my favorite drink. It is something I cannot live without. It is also a drink that probably a lot of people don't think about when it comes to supply chain, when it comes to communities, when it comes to sustainability, when it comes to equity, equality, and fair trade practices, and human rights, and I, the list goes on, right? So mm-hmm. why don't you take me way, way, way back to, we don't have to go back all the way to the mid-80s, but let's go back to the founding of Sustainable Harvest, why you got into coffee, what was the inspiration, and just talk a little bit about Sustainable Harvest and how you actually you know, run the company. And it has really not gone by me, the fact that you were a certified B Corporation before people knew what a certified B Corporation was as well. So a lot to unpack there and a lot to be very proud of. Yeah, I got into coffee a little bit by chance. I don't think I'm the only person who sort of fell into something they never thought they'd spend their life doing. But what I was interested in doing was I had been growing up in a family that focused a lot on international international issues. My father was a history professor at, in Fort Collins, Colorado State. My mom ran the international program. I did a lot of traveling, actually, as a, as a young person. And I thought I was going to get into international development. But after doing a little bit of that work in non-governmental organizations, I decided to volunteer and go down to Mexico. And this is at the time, right at the beginning of the 1990s, when a lot of things were shifting globally. Liberalization, the coffee agreement was changing. I didn't know it at the time, but I went down to volunteer with some farmers who were trying to organize themselves in Mexico City. And there was a moment where a farmer came into this sort of collection of unpaid and paid poorly volunteers who were trying to organize all of the Mexico growers into a more of a national union of coffee farmers. And this man walked in and he said, I heard you are here to help us sell our beans. And I looked around thinking, I know very little about coffee. I've only, only here for a year before I hope to go to business school. And I noticed that he had brought the beans down in a plastic bag. And he told me about how he had taken a bus for seven hours to come down from northern Mexico near where in Nayarit, near Puerto Vallarta area, 
and that there was a whole community of about 300 families waiting for him to come back with an answer on how they would sell their coffee beans. This might seem weird to people. Why wouldn't they already know how to sell this cash crop that they had? But at the time, because the Berlin Wall had fallen, the International Coffee Agreement was being disbanded. And back then, the president of Mexico, Salinas, was liberalizing all of the the public sector. There was no longer anybody to help smallholder farmers figure out how to sell their crop. Nobody to help them with marketing. And is this pre-NAFTA? This is pre-NAFTA. NAFTA will happen about five years later. Okay. Yeah, good point. Because So these people are in the vagaries of the free market that we all applaud here in the United States and that Reagan was pushing. And I was watching these farmers who were watching the coffee price that had been steady for 30 years drop precipitously from the price that was steady and, and livable and down to unlivable wages. And they didn't know how to even figure it out. So this man, Pedro, walks into the office in Mexico City and I listen to his story and he says, will you help us sell our beans? And I think to myself, how do people sell coffee beans? And so I I wasn't able to help Pedro with his question because I didn't have an answer right then. I knew that he couldn't sell his beans the way he had prepared them because he didn't know you had to actually take the husk off the beans to send it to a broker in New York. But I knew that he was very distant from the market he was selling into. He didn't understand the rules of the game. And he and all the people that he led in his ejido or communal land area were not going to be very successful until they understood the markets they sold into in a world that was quickly becoming globalized. This seemed to be a very odd and difficult situation for him. And his question sort of set me off on a path to figure it out. And so I actually went up to Manhattan with a bag of beans and a Kodak carousel projector. And I went to the phone books back in those days, the Yellow Pages, and looked up coffee buyers. And I was on Wall Street shortly thereafter with an appointment to meet with a big commodity firm. And that commodity firm let me in and they had, I remember walking in all these men in white shirts and black ties, all these screens that were the coffee market, this electronic version of how coffee prices go up and down that I had no idea about. And of course, neither did Pedro. And he wasn't with me, but I was sort of showing pictures of where the coffee came from, kind of the precursor of direct trade. Here's the terroir, here are the families, here's who grows your beans. And the commodity brokers there just looked at me like I was a little bit from outer space. And they finally said, listen, can you deliver the coffee? And I really hadn't set up anything to do that yet. And they sort of laughed me out the door. And I was a little embarrassed, but I knew there were these two guys making ice cream up in Vermont that seemed to care about where product came from. So I went up and visited Ben and Jerry's and some of their team. And they didn't say yes that they could buy the beans right away, but they did say, how do we get our coffee beans? And that gave me just enough energy and inspiration to keep trying until one day I would continue to write them and tell them about what I was working on with the farmers. And one day I got a call from somebody who said, listen, kid, I don't know who you are, but Ben and Jerry want your coffee beans. And that's how I sort of began to figure out how to create what became Sustainable Harvest. So it really happened with that question from Pedro saying, will you help us? And me realizing that I needed to help him understand how to sell his beans. Well, so, wow, there's so much there. I had no idea there was a Ben and Jerry's connection. And the fact that they let you in, and this is the 90s, right? This is what, yeah, 95, 91. 96, 91, early 90s. So 
you know, we've had a lot of folks in the show and a lot of folks who knew, know nothing about the business that they went into, right? Mm-hmm. They had the benefit of this thing called the internet where they're learning textiles and they're learning about vitamins and whatever, but you had nothing. You had sneaker net, you had nothing. You had two genius social entrepreneurs at the time who had a very successful ice cream business and they put their heart where their, everything was, right? And you had Pedro, right? And that's it. And you had no knowledge of coffee, except the fact that you probably drank coffee and you liked coffee, but you had no knowledge of the business itself. So how did you learn the business? Like, where did you go from there? Well, I had to learn the hard way because there wasn't a roadmap at the time of how do you help these farmers. There was a moment when I first started and I'd moved back to San Francisco at the time, and I was trying to figure out how to get customers like Ben and Jerry's and others and roasters throughout the U.S. to buy the coffee beans. And there was a moment where I said to them, I'm going to start a roastery and a cafe in San Francisco. And I was very proud of myself. And I told it to the farmers that were trying to organize. And they said, and how many beans will you buy? How many bags of 152 pounds? And I said, well, I could probably take 1,500 pounds maybe in the first year. And they said, we need you to sell a million five pounds of our coffee beans. (laughs) So don't go into being a roaster retailer, go into importing. I had no idea what I was stepping into, how to import. I've made every single mistake that an importer can possibly do from the moment when you bring your first container in and you are not sure exactly how to move it in. And suddenly a trucker comes up to your house with a container full of coffee beans and you realize you haven't sent them to the right warehouse because it's not your house. I mean, everything from, from that to buying high and selling low and not understanding how the future markets work. I think sometimes I look back and think, all right, I probably have learned how to create a model by making pretty much every mistake you can make. But the benefit, Aaron, of of doing it my way was that I was able to construct a coffee model, a business model that was different than any of the other importers or commodity traders. And I didn't learn maybe the ways they did it, but instead I thought, what should be how would the farmers want it? And I was always trying to build and create with the end user in mind, in which case it was the farmers, like how would Pedro and his colleagues be able to step into this market? Because I didn't see it as a long-term thing for me. I was just going to kind of do it for a while as a personal Peace Corps and then go off to business school. But after staying with it year after year, I finally lost my business school, you know, the submission money you have to put in your deposit. <laughs> and so I said, yeah, right, you- I'm I'm just going to learn from the school of business in action. And that's what I did. So you're an importer, you import the beans, and then you then distribute them or resell them, I should say, to folks who then roast them, right? Right. Yeah. I have customers in the US. People would know roasters that are in their neighborhoods locally. They'd know regional roasters who sell in their supermarkets. They might know national brands. All of those brand names, almost all of them are people that we work with and try to bring coffees in that are generally certified, organic and fair trade, and always have a story. And what I try to do, Aaron, is make sure that not only does every customer, every roaster that we were just describing knows where they're buying it from, but what I think we do uniquely in the coffee world is we try to make sure that every farmer leader knows who they're selling to. So they know my customers. And that's created all the difference. 
And where currently and how many different countries and communities are you sourcing from right now? Well, we're in 20 countries. So we're sourcing from about 79,000 farmers, if we look at it just on an individual basis, but from co-ops, about 110 co-ops, cooperatives, that would represent roughly 200,000 growers. So all through Latin America, right? South America, Central America, through Africa, and now we're sourcing coffees in Indonesia. So basically all the kinds of coffees that you might see in a coffee lineup, we're probably there. And we even have offices in six of those countries. And I'm going to guess that you've been, for the most part, to every one of those communities and or co-ops or someone on your team to vet and to make sure they meet your standards and you're able to verify who they are and, and make sure there's a mutuality in the business relationship. Yeah, I have not been to every single supplier because it's just it would take me many years, I think, to to do that. But every year, members of our in-house management team and impact team go to these communities and do diagnostics. And it's looking at the social, environmental, and the commercial capacity so that we get the coffee beans that are bringing good impact to the communities. So it's a lot of work, and that's where our staff spends a lot of their time. And when you use words like, because I see this on packaging, not just in coffee, but in all sorts of different kind of products and food products in particular, you'll see things like certified, non-GMO, fair trade. Can you just give us a little bit of a 101 and what all that means? Because I think we think we know what that means and we might be right, but we might be wrong. And we just kind of go, uh-huh, okay, that looks good. It's certified. It's, you know, whatever. So can you just explain all that terminology and what we should be looking for as consumers and questions we should be asking? Yeah, it is a complicated world. You know, you've mentioned about three or four labels and they I think there's more than 70 or 80 different labels out there that continue to confuse consumers so I think some of the basic ones that you were asking about, organic, grown without chemicals, certified by entities that are approved by the United States Department of Agriculture, pretty regulated, pretty safe to know that you're getting something that's without chemicals. Fair trade, it's grown with a minimum price to producers, only available to producers that are in smallholder co-ops with some exceptions of some estates. So that leaves out a lot of private farms and bigger farms, which has been one of its challenges a new label that happened in the 90s, well, actually 2000s was direct trade where roasters would go on trips, visit farmers and say, hey, I, I met these people. Now I'm going to tell you about that. And it's a direct trade and, and insinuating that the farmers were already always doing better because they, these roasters were often paying higher prices. But that sometimes call it was challenged by the small volume that they were buying and, and the need that was out there. So GMO without genetic you know, not genetically modified. Natural probably doesn't mean anything. You know, rainforest friendly, bird friendly, now soon to be carbon resilient is all about the shade trees and the carbon sequestration. Well, at least in the carbon side of the soil tilling and things like that. So more complexity on the rise as people see coffee labels. But let me let me tell you how I sort of navigated it. I looked to what was the greatest way for me to raise the price paid to the smallholder producers. So as I look at labels and people come to us with all kinds of different labels, as long as there's a premium that's significant paid to the farmers, I'm probably interested in it. Organic does that. Fair trade does that. Some of the others are starting to, to show more premiums because at the end of the day, that's how I measure our value 
is are we increasing the amount of money that's going to the widest you know, number of farmers that we work with? And you just import, not just, but you are specifically focused on coffee, right? Right. Are there other industries that could, especially in the food area, I'm sure the answer is yes, but it sounds like you have a formula and a structure that can be adopted and scaled for others to follow. One, what other industries can you think of that can do this? And two, what do you think the biggest gating factor is in being able to basically follow this type of a formula where there is this incredible mutuality and there's, it defines equity and a more equitable partnership with growers and importers as well as roasters in, in the coffee industry? Yeah. So let me first describe, I mean, I think there's a number of industries that have come to Sustainable Harvest and said, hey, help us understand how to apply this textiles, cocoa, fruits, and even wool farmers in the U.S., right? Sheep farmers. How do we build a more inclusive supply chain? And what they're looking for is beyond just the glib transparency and traceability and blockchain and some of these words that are thrown around that make people think, okay, this is going to be a resilient supply chain to those companies that realize, no, we actually actually, we need to know at a deep level of engagement who our partners are. And what I created in 1997, so it'll be 25 years now, with Sustainable Harvest was based on a learned model that I started to put together from all those mistakes I was describing earlier on what I called the relationship coffee model. And so the element at the core was everybody needs to know each other and you have to bring stakeholders together to the table. It was really almost about a moderating role, sort of Think of the waiter bringing a grower together with the consumer. It's a little bit like when you go to the farmer's market, right? You meet the grower there, you have a conversation, you develop a relationship. Your ability to understand and help each other in terms of they know what you might want to see grown because you give them feedback or you might want to help them with a some early harvest money so that they can put in new seeds or whatever needs to happen. You start to build these kinds of connections and on a local level, sometimes with farmers markets. I felt like we could do that with a, a global commodity if we understood who's not at the table. So I, I taught my team to always have a three-way conversation between the grower, or that's the supplier, and the roaster, that's our customer, and ourselves. And then I would always ask them, so everybody was, you know, fluent in the second language. They were very comfortable navigating these meetings. I was able to hire a lot of sort of liberal arts people who had global outlooks and teach them how to be tasters, how to manage finance, how to manage inventories. But that skill of helping people talk to each other was at the core of what I needed to see happen in the model. And then to think about who else should be at this table. Do we need to invite government in? Do we need to invite philanthropy in? Do we need to invite academia to look at are we doing things right? The certification agencies, why aren't they here? The transport companies. And so I started to build out actually in 2003, a long time ago, a global gathering where I brought all of those people in our supply chain, in a discrete supply chain together, and they would actually have these conversations. And we would have five or 600 people come together in a producing country that we called Let's Talk Coffee. That model is, you know, as you start to peel away the onion, you realize it's based on just a conversation around the table about what does it take for everybody to succeed? But it's a fairly complex thing to take 
across, now we do 30 million pounds of coffee. It's a lot of beans that we're moving across the water, a lot of farmers that are involved. And yet I think it's, I'm convinced that it's a good model for the global future. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it's a model that's heavily, heavily based on trust and trust as a byproduct of understanding the culture and respecting the culture of these communities, right? We had someone on who is sourcing shea butter from these communities in Ghana. We had someone who's sourcing fruits from the Amazon, you know, it's really regenerative, you know, for fruit juice in, in Brazil. And everybody always keeps coming back to, like you said, it's relationship, but it's also making sure that you understand each other's cultures and you don't appear even though it's not the intent that you're appropriating their culture for commercial gain without making sure there's equity in the relationship. Yeah, I think you bring up an excellent point. It hasn't been a challenge for us because of a couple of things. First of all, we built from the ground up with Pedro at the table, with Pedro in mind. Like We were creating for him to be able to talk to those people I was meeting with in New York or to meet with Ben and Jerry, right? That's where my mind was that I didn't want to be the intermediary. I just wanted to have him at the table. It's a distinction that's really important. Then we put offices starting in 2002 in Mexico, then Peru, then Colombia, then Rwanda. And we always had local people who understood the context. They were coffee experts, but they also knew the farmer leaders. And as we expanded those offices, that gave us that voice all the time. You know, sometimes the complaint internally in our company is that we're too producer focused. But I think in a world that's so capitalistic and, and everybody trying to cut costs, I think it's good that somebody is out there talking about what the producers need. And we get that from our global, in our global staff calls, just because people are, are able to give that insight. So I think those are the reasons why, you know, when it comes to appropriating people's image or content, they're actually at the table deciding whether or not they want their photo or their story or how they want it told. We had a storytelling seminar just a few weeks ago where we had a magazine editor teaching a lot of next gen, next generation producer kids and the, you know, the sons and daughters of leaders and farmers how to tell stories effectively to, to global brands, right? There's a technique. It's not something that comes intuitively. So we actually are actively training. That's the power of the, the webinars now virtually that we had 40 different suppliers from 12 countries listening to this person to help them understand how to tell their stories about their community. So we're not appropriating. We're actually trying to make them where the information comes from. And back when you were building this company, again, no internet. In fact, there really wasn't even a PC. There's, maybe there's pagers, but there's green screens. There, you're talking in the 90s, right? Early 90s, early mid 90s. Did you get a lot of like, a little bit of like the side eye from friends and family? Like, what are you doing? Because even when I think about the political, the geopolitical environment of these countries that you're going into at that time, Mexico, Rwanda, I mean, it wasn't always safe either. And you're an outsider. Talk a little bit about that. Well, I got, a, I got the side eye. I think you described it as a lot from when I'd go in and try to sell something. I always had to define, <laughs> people would say, what is sustainability? What does that word mean? So in 1995, I mean, there was the Brundtland report out of the UN that said, you know, we do things so that future generations, you know, there was some definition I could give, but it still, they were glazing over. And I basically broke it down to whether I was meeting with farmers in the mountains of Peru or with a CPG packaging person, I'd say, for me, sustainability is that maybe my son, and I point to my then three-year-old, 
can work with your son or daughter? Like, can we make this business last? And can we build the structures so that we are still working out the problems that we're all going to face? Like, if we can sustain doing business together and the communities and the impact that these products have on our environment, you know, some things for me were almost like without saying, of course, I was going to source organically. That's just who I was. Of course, I was going to try to find shade-grown, bird-friendly coffee. I My early work with the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center, taking them to coffee farms in the 90s, you know, helped drill that into me. I had my ethical gyroscope, so to speak, was pretty well honed in on what was a good farm. But the question was, how do I get other people to believe in the quality of the product coming out of that? Because sometimes what happens is people think that if you're bringing a story about environmental and social, they look askance because they think, okay, he's trying to pull a fast one. It's not quality product. So we had to bring those lines together so that it hit the perfect center. So that was some of the askance. Now you asked about family. How did family look at it? And I think the hardest part for me, because being a coffee importer has some of the worst margins in the supply chain. Unfortunately, I hadn't done any research to figure out where the margins were and that I needed to be on the top part where you retail. And I mean, it's got its own set of problems. Everybody's always looking across and saying, oh, it must be easy over there. But if you look at the value chain, the smallest margin or about five to 6% gross margin is at the importer level. It's less than 1% net. So most people, when they would look at my business, just say, this doesn't make any business sense. And you have to scale to such a large volume, which requires a lot of capital to even play the game, to even be able to hire one extra person. So I think the thing that surprises business school students when I talk to them is that I had to work about eight years by myself before I was able to afford my first employee. So that meant I had to be a jack of all trades. I'm not sure I recommend it because I think it probably had some psychological damage on like, you know, I just don't like working alone anymore. I'd rather have other people. And if I I just think that that's something that all entrepreneurs face where you have to be good at marketing, good at shipping, good at banking, good at sourcing. And in coffee, there was just a lot of pieces. Now I have a crowd of people that that help me with that. And I am able to focus on mostly the relationship building, sort of getting back to the Pedro part, which I think is what I like. But I think I could have started this race a thousand times and lost 999 sometimes. And I think it was just sheer a lot of lucky breaks and a lot of just being stubborn that I didn't want to let those people who said sustainable business doesn't work. I was just so stubborn to want to prove them wrong. But I, my heart goes out to those people who, you know, are in the place where I was when it's the fourth year of eight working alone on something, trying to make it work. Yeah, that is some major endurance ability there for sure. And did you just use all your own capital to get this off the ground and sweat equity? Yeah, I never could guy. <laughs> people always say, do you have any investors? And I don't because people looked at my business and said, this is not a good investment. <laughs> so I guess I was lucky that way. But my parents were of modest means. My dad's a college professor. So basically, the way I brought coffee in was I had to, it was a really funky way. I had to find some other financial partner, in this case, another big coffee importer, who I would set up the deal with the farmers and the roaster. And they would ship the coffee, and then I would buy it from them at the warehouse in New York. And I would get paid by my customer in net 20 or 20 days after shipping them the coffee and you know, upon release. And then I would have you know, net 30 from the importer. 
all of that to say, I had about a five to 10 day window to pay off every single bill. So I learned how to collect. I was crazy about collections, which people know that's a really important part about business. But if somebody was late on payment, then I was late and everything you know, became very challenging. So I couldn't get a bank loan. I didn't have enough equity. I didn't have a house. And so I had to come up with these really clever ways to use other people and until finally I started to build up enough volume that I had to go out on my own and find my own banking relationship. So it, it's one of those things that you just sort of, it's the art of the possible, but I was pretty lucky that people were willing to at least give me a hand and I had to pay them for that. Now with you know inflation at an all-time high in 40 years and supply chain issues the last two years, how has COVID impacted your business? It's been super challenging. COVID impacts the business at the origin level, at the where the farmers are, by creating higher prices for them because it's harder for them to get out. You know, COVID is ravaging communities and the vaccines aren't there. So it's harder to collect coffee. I think you're probably familiar with the shipping disasters that we see on both coasts where ships are five to seven times longer to deliver their goods. Yeah, Maybe people aren't as familiar, but certainly people in supply chains are familiar with the incredibly high increases in costs of shipping. And the way I describe it sometimes to people is you think you had a seat on an airline. You get to the airport, they say, oh, that plane is no longer flying. So your seat's been canceled, but you can take this new seat. And instead of being $250, it's $3,000. And that's the kind of scale of price increases we've seen on the shipping containers that have been canceled from, say, Peru to Seattle, to where we saw, just to give, I think its specifics are sometimes helpful. Usually a container used to cost $3,000 to ship, and then it was $28,000. So that's wow. a, that's a that's a huge jump because that's more than all the profit that you'd ever make in coffee. And so we're not the only ones that were facing some huge challenges. And it's been interesting to think about how to solve those, not just sort of cowering your head, but starting to have conversations with both sides, your suppliers and your customers to see how do we get through this together. And are you generally hopeful that it sounds like you've been pretty innovative in getting around some of these challenges. Are you pretty hopeful that these things will eventually work themselves out and subside over time? I am hopeful because what I found was by, I mean, it was kind of a risky thing to tell my customer, here's the situation we're in and to tell my suppliers because they might get nervous and maybe they'd leave us. But I actually found that the opposite happened. Even though these customers were facing increasing prices from all of their vendors, we were able to get everybody together on a call and talk about like, this is a once in a coffee lifetime experience of these kinds of price increases. We want to keep the relationship between you and this final customer in place. And this final customer would say, we need product on the shelf. We're not selling it how we used to, but we're certainly selling it through grocery stores and online and we need product. And so the call was made really clear. Let's stay with it, hang on, and we're going to grow together in the future. And that gave everybody like not only inspiration, but also the transparency they needed because not everybody knew where everybody else stood. 
you know, philosophically on it. So I was really, I felt like at that moment, the relationship coffee model has really shown some business value because this could have been a disaster for a lot of different sides. I'm going to assume, you know, forgive the expression that you do get high in your own supply, that you love coffee. <laughs> yeah, I do love coffee. What's your favorite bean? Or you allowed to say that because that's like, you know, yeah, I know, it's like, it's like, all oh, I love all my kids equally, but I'm sure you've got something. Yeah. I mean, I think I have certain favorites. I think that for just like a morning coffee, there's coffees in Colombia. I mean, Aaron, as I think about it, though, and Ethiopia coffees have some, you know, there's just so many different flavors and nuances to what comes out of there. And I think what I like to see is you know, when, I, when I know the story of the processing and of the producer on a coffee, and I can just sit there and sort of think about what they went through. We had some coffees arrive just this week from Java, you know, and I know those stories really well and how they're, how they're improving the processes and they're, they're innovating and trying new techniques. And you taste these incredible flavors of citrus and things that we'd never tasted before. And, but I think it's, I'm able to connect it back to a person and so, yeah, I would say I probably have 20 favorite coffees. Yeah. I feel like coffee's really become like wine in terms of the varietals, right? As it should. I mean, I prefer coffee over wine anyway, but I'm glad to hear you say that. And one last question for you, because hearing your journey and like Pedro and the guys from Ben and Jerry's, is there anybody else you just wanted to shout out that you're so grateful, whether it was through luck or dumb luck or serendipity? or thoughtful planning or just happenstance that early on helped you get to, you know, where you are today with the business? I mean, there are so many people that I'd want to name. You know, I think about that importer that decided to help me bring the coffee in, even though it was a business decision for him. Or I think about a roaster in Northern California that, you know, helped me start off and just said, hey, you should you should do this and gave me some some chances. One roaster in particular, Thanksgiving Coffee up in, in Fort Bragg, California, you know, actually helped me get started the first year because he said, you just got to you got to do this. You can't you can't keep waiting for for somebody else to step in. And as I just look at and I think about, you know, supportive parents and a supportive wife and all those things, all of us who are entrepreneurs sometimes can easily forget that it's all of these great people around us. And a couple of members of my staff, Jorge Cuevas, our chief coffee officer, started with me in 1994. Like that's, wow. he was only coming out of college. He was actually one of my mom's international students that I was mentioning. And she said, this is a great person. And, you know, later on, here he is now managing this global supply chain and is really the voice of our company. So I guess, yeah, it's always these moments that we need to look back and realize it's on the shoulders of others that we stand and how grateful we need to be for the journey we've had together. That is beautifully said. And I think we're going to end it there. So interesting. You are our first and maybe our only coffee importer we've ever had on the show. Definitely the most interesting. And you'll probably hold that title forever. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your, your story. You know, so many folks who listen to this podcast are looking for inspiration, either in their own personal lives, to be able to give back and or be a catalyst for change for the companies they work for or start something. And hearing your story and how you're able to start something when the odds of success or the chances for success, at least optically, probably for any other person are very, very low. The fact you're able to do this is nothing short of extraordinary. And like I said earlier from the onset, 
you know, the fact that you were one of the first B Corps when nobody knew what a B Corp was. And you're talking about sustainability, which just now, sadly, is finally becoming part of our vernacular so, so long ago, almost 30 years ago, is extraordinary. So thank you for your servant leadership, for helping these communities and for bringing the story to the masses. So thank you again, David. I wish you all the best. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast.